Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And we really are doing that this week because we have a special tour of the world, a discussion on the outlook for the global economy, which I took part in a few days ago, hosted by the Council on Foreign Relations. My fellow speakers were the eminent economist and former head of the New York Federal Reserve, Bill Dudley, and the equally eminent president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, Adam Posen. And for once, I didn't have to ask all the questions because the Council on Foreign Relations Senior Fellow for International Economics, Sebastian Malaby, was in the chair. He started by asking Bill Dudley about the state of the US economy and especially the surprisingly weak employment growth that we saw in April. You might remember, instead of adding a million more jobs that month, which everybody was expecting, the number was fewer than 270,000, meaning there are still 8 million fewer people in work in the US than there were before COVID. You were one of the first to sound a warning about an inflation resurgence. You wrote a piece in uh, Bloomberg back in uh, December. Um, How worried about inflation are you now? Well, I think the, uh, you know, the bubble of inflation that uh, we thought was going to happen has arrived. And it's basically arriving for a couple of reasons. One, base effects, we're throwing out the very low readings from a year ago now. So the year-over-year numbers are spiking up because of that. But the most important reason why we're seeing more inflation is there's a lot of friction uh, in the economy as you try to reallocate resources back to uh, rapidly uh, increasing uh, demand. Look at the big increase we saw in used car prices, for example. Do we really think that's sustainable over time? I think eventually auto production will, will pick up as some of these ship shortages ease. And so inflation will, will come back down again. That said, uh, it's certainly more than what we were expecting. I mean, I don't think anybody was expecting to think that the core inflation would already be at 3%. And, in, and it, may be, it may become more difficult for the Fed to keep talking about this being transitory as it maybe might last you know, six to 12 months before we start to see the other side of this. Yeah, and you've, you haven't mentioned um, the sort of dry powder argument that households in addition to the fiscal stimulus, the households are sitting on a lot of money because the savings well, rate has been so high. Yeah, demand's going to be very strong, I think. You know, there's 8 million people that are still unemployed because of the pandemic, and those people have suffered greatly. But for the rest of people in the U.S., uh, they're coming out of, this, out of this recession in great financial shape. I mean, the household savings rates, you know, been, been running over 20%. A lot of people have used the stimulus money to pay down debt, and monetary fiscal policy are very expansive. So, it's really hard not to see a very strong economic recovery in the year ahead unless something happens with the virus and the effectiveness of the vaccines to throw that all out the, out the window. So I think that you know, what's going to happen is we're going we're to get back to full employment, I think, faster than what people uh, anticipate. And the Fed's going to try to be patient, but their, their patience may ultimately be overrun by an economy that does better than what they're currently anticipating. So, Adam, switching to fiscal, I guess... Um, the question I'm curious about is you, you've got this, you know, these, these two uh, bills proposed, um, which are expensive, but at the same time will generate revenues in the sense that lifelong learning and income tax credits, infrastructure, childcare provision, all of these things can increase, increase the, uh, the productivity of the workforce. Um, how far do you think in the long term these things can be viewed as, you know, not just cre- increasing the, the share of government and GDP, 
but growing the pie? I think a lot of it can be, Sebastian. I think the problem is we've heard so many claims through the years about tax cuts paying for themselves, that we, which they never do or almost never do unless your marginal tax rates are extremely high, that people are skeptical about claims things will pay for themselves. I think many of the aspects you mentioned, particularly things that improve the quality and the quantity of the workforce. So the pre-K education, the community college, the childcare help through taxes and provision to enable women to better balance home and work, um, more portability on things of insurance and pensions, all of these things are improvements in not just productivity, but even more so they're improvements in labor supply. But the thing is, they pay for themselves over five, 10, 20 years. They don't pay for themselves over two years and Mm -hmm. they have to be sustained. I don't get caught up in this infrastructure lexicon debate of what you label infrastructure or not. And there are gonna be wasteful things, but on balance, if this can be sustained and if there can be an agreement that this you know, a a few percent of GDP spread over a few years, that will be helpful to this country. In addition to whatever you do to repair bridges, trains, power grid, which also obviously is necessary. And and switching tack a bit to um, uh, the foreign exchange markets. So there there is a view that says, um, you know, we may have an inflation problem coming, but we also have a dollar problem in the sense that foreign savers are being asked to finance this US fiscal expansion at a time when interest rates are negative. Um, Do you see uh, that as being a problem in terms of dollar inflows and therefore dollar weakness? I don't in the short term at all. Um, I think, and Sebastian, you and Stephanie and Bill have all been around the block on this with me as well. What would drive down demand for the dollar is also what would mess up the fiscal policy, which is if we have political division in the society and in the particularly in the governance, such that we cannot raise taxes if we need to, such that we cannot sustain useful investments that get reversed and changed every election, then people start saying, as they used to do for Italy or Argentina or Greece, okay, there's there's a lack of fiscal credibility there. And that's when the dollar starts to fade. And so for me, it's a least ugly contest. And so the US is increasing its ugliness on this fundamental basis, not because of the debt level, but because of the governance. And so that makes things like, frankly, the Euro look relatively more attractive in my opinion. So Stephanie, um, a few years ago, we might have stopped the presses for that sort of positive (laughs) comment about Europe. Do you agree broadly that um, the Eurozone and the EU are emerging from the pandemic looking credible uh, despite the slow vaccine rollout? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even sure that Adam was, was saying that much, but he was certainly being more positive than we might have been even, even a few months ago. Look, I think if you, I mean, if you step back a bit, we could probably say that Europe did a slightly better job of protect, protecting citizens and even cushioning the effect on the economy in the sort of act one of the pandemic last year. But if you think it's seriously botched up Act 2, this sort of crucial period of, of obtaining and then rolling out the vaccines. Um, but And that's led to this 
you know, palpable delay in the recovery, certainly relative to the UK. It's catching up. We're getting nice data confidence, I would say, and spending is actually probably getting ahead of where countries are in terms of vaccinations, infections, um, even and quite strict restrictions in, in many cases still. So you're looking at maybe two thirds of the population being vaccinated by August or September. But I mean, I say that because that's a pretty the, the, the difference between that and what you're, you're seeing in the UK and the US, which is the beginning of the summer being at that stage, is pretty crucial if you're particularly one of the southern European countries utterly dependent on tourism. So this this few months delay, if it's if it means losing a summer or, or losing a big chunk of your summer trade, that is, is quite significant and I think further sort of worsens the credibility of, the, of the, the whole EU effort this year. Even though, as you say, people are optimistic, you listen into the ECB press conferences, uh, Christine Lagarde's upbeat, um, it, it could have been a lot better. And if you're in Spain or Portugal, you are really uh, going to be affected by that. And of course, it also worsens some of these north-south divides that we know have been exacerbated um, by the crisis. The key thing, which I'm sure you'll get onto, is whether there's been an institutional shift that's been sort of kick-started by COVID last year. And I think there, there is some, there's optimism in that you now have this next generation EU funding going out. It could help sort of seal the deal on the recovery. But I worry a bit that though it has this sort of potential, and it clearly was enormously significant to have now some sort of serious collective financing for fiscal policy of some degree in Europe. Um, you know, we're kind of in the opposite situation we were in in the Eurozone. I mean, we've all talked, you know, during the Eurozone crisis, we would, at key moments, you had leadership, whether it was from Mario Draghi or, or Chancellor Merkel, jumping in and sort of papering over the cracks where there were no institutions to hold the, to, to help the Eurozone respond. We now have potentially this institution that could really help it move forward. And the leadership isn't there. You know, you have the European Commission undermined by the way the rollout was handled. You have Chancellor Merkel on the way out and and President Macron, who's probably been the greatest sort of talking most about what Europe could do if it was more unified, what a European identity could be. You know, he's very much distracted with that election coming up in a year. I see the story that, on the one hand, um, you've got this institutional shift in that there is now this joint joint liability. The euro, the, the eurozone is issuing its own bond, or the European Union is issuing its own bond. The question is, you're saying a, a leadership deficit. On that, the prospect that the Greens might do well in the next general election might portend a greater willingness to do fiscal burden sharing and make the most of that opening created by the joint bond. Those of us sitting outside Germany always think everything is an opportunity to have a different German fiscal start. Then it suffers when it, you actually contact the German politicians involved. And you tend to always find that they're not really very different from the ones before. And I'm probably not the person to talk about all the permutations of potential coalitions coming out of the next German election. But I think as long if if the um, the chances are that the Christian Democrats will be there in some form, and then, then it won't actually make necessarily a huge difference if the Greens uh, have the chancellery itself. Um, but I think you're right to say that green issues and the green transition, uh, economic transition, is an area where Europe has clearly got 
has made some strides and could show real leadership uh, in the world. Um, I think it's also shown itself um, better at responding to the competitive and other challenges of big tech uh, and taxing uh, big tech beginning to do that. Uh, so I think that, I mean, there is a potential there, but we're always saying that, but then the actual innovations are lacking. The innovations are all coming from the US. I, I'm largely with Stephanie. I think the fiscal changes that have been made are precedent setting and exercise the institutions and legitimize future mutual efforts on the fiscal front, but the actual use of the, the common fiscal policy is going to be very limited. So, And the German Steph- deficit still ended up being much smaller than they had originally. Yeah, of course. They, they're the only country in the world that announces they're going to have much bigger, bigger deficits than actually turns out. <laughs> Which takes a lot of work. <laughs> okay, so we, we have we have Posen, uh, you know, guardedly more positive on the p- prospects of the euro, but we also have the, the British <laughs> the British voices still as skeptical of Germany as ever. Maybe well, well, so, I'm sorry. I just want to say, I mean, my point is not that the euro and Europe are doing great. My point is that they have slightly improved in a world where the U.S. is worsening and property rights are no good in China. So in the relative ugliness contest, Europe comes up. I mean, no, no longer hitting themselves in the head with a giant hammer is definitely exactly. a big uh, big step forward. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's bring another region into this debate, which is um, the emerging world. I guess the analogy I have at the back of my mind is that you know, India had a first wave of COVID and people say, wow, that was remarkably mild because, well, maybe the Indian population is young, whatever, whatever reason we don't understand, but the country was hit less badly than we feared. And then second wave comes and it's truly appalling. And in the same way, slightly on economic policy tools, I remember discussing with people at the beginning of the pandemic, the sort of inequity that the uh, strong economies, the developed economies had policy space, but emerging economies might not. Now, the Fed and the other leading central banks loosened so much that there was really policy space for everybody, but maybe a second wave could be different. So Bill, perhaps I could put this to you. Do you think that this world in which the US recovers a good deal faster than um, a lot of emerging markets is gonna create complications through the exchange rate channel? I mean, it could, but you know, it, that will be all set by the fact that a strong U.S. recovery that's accompanied by a strong recovery in other advanced economies probably means commodity prices uh, go, go go up quite a bit, and that so the terms of trade will be, you know, will be beneficial to emerging markets. And the second thing I think it's really important is the Fed is going to be slow regard relative to whatever economic recovery that we get because they basically told us that they're not going to tighten monetary policy until. They're at full employment, they're at 2% inflation, and they're confident inflation is going to go above 2% for some time to come. That's a big change in the monetary policy framework. So the Fed has basically communicated that we're going to be late. So that gives time for the emerging markets uh, to sort of catch up in terms of vaccination, in terms of the COVID-based recovery, I think. Um, So I think that, you know, the risk from, from the Fed is really more that it's not like immediate. I think it's really like two or three years down the road. When all of a sudden the Fed has to go from very easy to tight, and that has to happen in you know, you know, twelve months. Now that'll be a shock for markets, but I don't think that risk is going to materialize in the near term. Adam, historians sometimes talk about you know how pandemics have changed political economy in various ways. 
either the omnipresence of risk can boost entrepreneurial risk appetite, and you do see more new business formation in, in the US and I think also the UK uh, in the last year than, than normally. Or businesses respond to health hazards by mechanizing production because the labor force has to be distanced or they're sick or whatever. So you get an acceleration of mechanization. Um, you've written a great essay in foreign affairs. Perhaps you could talk about how you see, like what is the big political economy effect um, uh, coming out of COVID? Well, Sebastian, as many people have been noticing, industrial policy of various forms is now back into chic. Um, and this has an anti-globalization taint to it, including in the Biden administration and some other places. Um, and it sometimes gets tied to the national security side to China's doing it and we can't let China have the technology. And so if we move to an environment where people are more concerned about trust because of health reasons, because of local governance reasons, and because of perhaps overdone national security fears, then I think there's a cascade of effects. Um, I think we're going to see too much emphasis on manufacturing and too much emphasis on autarky, which isn't going to go very well either politically or economically. I think we're going to see too much emphasis on local loyalties. Um, I mean, we see this in the leveling up debate in Britain. We see this in the discussion of the places falling behind in the U.S. Um, we see this throughout the world, but we also see that there are very few policies that level up regions rather than people. Um, so you look at even China, which has the world's largest set of subsidies and the world's best ability to order people to move someplace or to put businesses someplace. And we still see these huge, in their latest census, these huge changes in population of the Southeast versus the North and West and little income convergence between them. We see in West Virginia, two senators, again, extorting the whole government, just as Bobby Byrd used to do to bring goodies to West Virginia, and yet West Virginia remains zero income convergence versus the rest of the country. So there's a lot of frustration and anger where we're already giving the people, the, ang the prototypical angry white male, the rural white voter, or their equivalent in other countries, what they want, which is a retreat from globalization, subsidies, local, local boosts, and it doesn't work politically or economically. So this is why the center left and others are flailing about now trying to find something else to do. And it's hard to convince people if, if you have presidents and populists on both sides saying you can have a pony that to convince them that no, you can't have a pony. Uh, you have to get on, the, uh, get on the train and go someplace else. Um, so the final point, sorry, I'm rambling. The, the, the key point is a, I think the political divisions in, in the democracies continue to rise for the time being. And B, that the world does turn more into blocks. I mean, again, we've all heard people writing bestsellers every few years about the world turning into economic blocks. I think finally that time is hitting now that it's gonna start happening. Stephanie, the same debate plays out a bit in the UK about uh, regional equity. Um, listening to Adam, what's your reaction? 
Well, I was just smiling because I thought how much that Adam would hate Boris Johnson's new slogan, which is live local and prosper. Which he might consider a contradiction in terms. I mean, I think it is uh, a debate that we're seeing in, in the UK and it's, there is a sort of fundamental um, philosophical shift. I don't know if it's going to be matched with a financial shift or let alone an economic shift, but you've certainly you've now got the, the government in that sort of live local and prosper mantra, actually saying to small towns, you don't, you can aspire to more than being the dormitory for some big city that we put lots of money into. And that, of course, has been the model of even regional, you know, regional development across America and certainly across Britain for, for decades is you get, you maybe don't want it all in London, but you try and get more Londons. You try and have cities that can then have the agglomeration effects and there are towns around that are supporting the economic activity in the city, but the city is the central bit that's delivering the jobs. But Boris Johnson is now saying in terms to people no, you know, we, we're not going to force you to go. We're going to take the jobs to you. You don't have to go in the city. You don't even have to get on a train to get them. And I share some of Adam's scepticism about that. I don't think there is any sort of real economic thinking behind that particular thing. But I would push back a bit. I think even before this, many of us were thinking that there had to be more emphasis on people and places and livability in the vision of globalization that we have. Um, and I think uh, there is, I'm not sure I see a fundamental threat to globalization coming out of this. You know, when we, at the beginning of the crisis, we sort of thought, oh, all supply chains were going to regionalize, everyone was going to pull out of China. It's not what we see on the ground. We don't see people pulling out of China and we don't, we only see limited regionalization. We have seen massive digitization. And I think that automation has obviously gone, done in a few weeks, certainly months what we might have expected to have happen over five years. And that holds, you know, there's opportunities there in terms of bringing, not necessarily bringing jobs right to where people are, but changing the pattern of jobs um, if, we, if we help prepare people for it. And that, again, is the big hole. The, big, the, the special Boris Johnson-sized hole in this is that they're not going to spend any money on any of this compared to, you know, Adam's worried that, uh, Biden's actually putting some financial weight behind this policy. You don't have to worry about that in the UK because all the sort of extra spending that's gone into the economy is all is all going to dry up uh, next year. Uh, can I just quickly respond as usual, Stephanie? And I agree about eighty percent, but disagree violently on about twenty percent, or not so violently. <laughs> um, first point is my my concern is not so much that Biden's going to spend money on this. My concern is more that. If we focus on the rural local and we focus on manufacturing and we basically ignore 85% of the non-college educated people who work in frontline services and who mostly live in cities. And so it, it's, it's partly a justice argument as well as an efficiency argument. It's not about the waste of money. It's about the diversion of attention. But secondly, and the thing I wanted to pick up on is Stephanie's absolutely right about supply chains and her and her Bloomberg colleagues have done a great job of reporting and tracking on this. But I think trade is a very actually small part of the story. Um, look, it's, the corrosion of globalization that we're seeing is much more about flows of people, flows of technology, flows of ideas. And even in the digital realm, while I agree, there is this potential for allowing small businesses, individual workers to sort of get more flexible from where they happen to be located. 
I think there's also divisions going up in the world around the internet, around platforms, around standards. There are fewer students going back and forth across borders. There are fewer people. The immigration is being cut back in a lot of places. Now, the U.S. is doing more of this cutback than most places. And that's one of the things I tried to put out in my article, and we have charts at PIE.com about this, that it got much worse under Trump, but it really all started 20 years ago. And it wasn't just trade. It was investment. It was immigration. It was um, making trade deals or not making trade deals while others make them. So I just want to say that I'm not sanguine about globalization in general, and particularly from the U.S., even though I agree with Stephanie's characterization of trade and supply chain. We were trading messages uh, before we went live here, and um, I think, Bill, you said to me that um, your choice for the political economy shift coming out of the pandemic would have to do with uh, inequality. Well, I think the th thing that strikes me about the pandemic is how uh, uh, unfair it has been to a small section of the population, you know, the people who worked in leisure and hospitality, the people that had the lowest incomes. So the burden has fallen very disproportionately on a small segment of the population, you know, the 8.2 million people that are still without jobs. And I think that really colors uh, economic policy going forward is like, because it really underscores to Adam's point, how unfair and unequal a lot of aspects of the US uh, regime are in terms of you know, the taxation regime, the inheritance taxes. I mean, things that allow generations to pass on money to, to, the, to, their, to their children, their grandchildren. And I think that's really gonna be the lasting impact of COVID, I think in the United States. It's really gonna, it's illustrated so clearly the inequities in the society. And I'm sort of hoping that, that, that as a consequence of that, we'll actually see lasting uh, set of policies to address that. Do you want to comment on this, Stephanie? Well, I think it's. I mean, it clearly is something that we've has been most evident in the in what's happened in in the response to the to the crisis. And I, but I think of it as being. Uh, I think Robert McFarlane talks about unburials in a book he he's written, the British author, and that he's talking about things that get unburied close to the Arctic Circle, things that were. Buried hundreds, you know, were expected to stay under the surface, but because of global warming, are sort of just coming out of the earth. And it feels a bit like that. Inequalities that we knew were there have just become much more evident and have been been unburied. Um, I guess I'm just a little bit skeptical. I mean, there has been quite a deep understanding of inequality for some time, and a lack of, in most countries, a lack of practical political will, particularly when it comes to capital taxation. You know, people way down the income scale want to pass on wealth, even when they don't have any, they really care about the ability <laughs> to pass on wealth. It's just been a, it's been a persistent issue um, trying to even begin to address that. And you end up with these very inefficient property taxes as a result, taxes in the UK, you tax the transaction, you don't really tax anything to do with the value of the, the house itself on an annual basis. So I would like to think of all the things that Bill's talking about, that actually this long overdue shift to thinking more in terms of capital taxation and not only in terms of income tax when you're thinking about any kind of redistribution um, will start to happen in the US and other places as a result of the crisis. But I'm just, given how much the crisis has itself exacerbated inequality, I guess I sort of feel like you'd have to have quite a lot of political will just to offset what's happened in the last two years, let alone start to turn some tide. 
I, the one thing I wanted to add, which is another place where I want to give credit to the Biden administration, is their very clear openness stated by Secretary Yellen that they're going to engage in the international discussions over minimum corporate tax globally and against profit shifting by large companies and, and particularly digital companies. And that's not going to solve every problem, but unless you make sure that countries are getting revenue and that that revenue is seen as fairly gotten. That's it for this special episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back next week with a lot more from around the world. But if you need to, you can always get more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with special thanks to Sebastian Malaby, Bill Dudley, Adam Posen and all at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. The new executive producer of Stephanomics is Mike Sasso and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. 